sabbaticaling. Is that an actual word? Yeah, if not, it is now, right? Because we have a whole message called sabbaticaling. Hope Church here was gracious enough to recently gift my family and I a three-week mini-sabbatical. It's a gift that you truly can't uh, describe how amazing of a gift that is, but it was such a gift. And apparently, while I was away, if people were to call the office to get a hold of me, Allison would respond that I was away sabbaticaling. (laughs) I suppose it's the verb form of sabbatical, a present particle verb for those who love grammar. Sabbaticaling. It's fun to say. Why don't you say it? Sabbaticaling. Just kind of sabbaticaling. It just kind of goes, right? I kind of like this word. I kind of like this new word because, yeah, it's fun to say. But it reflects the heart of a God-centered sabbatical. We know sabbatical comes from the word Sabbath, to intentionally cease working, to rest, and enjoy God's presence, and to enjoy the gifts of God. But there's also within sabbaticaling that little word, calling. And I like this because during my many sabbatical, I spent a lot of my time on sabbatical reflecting on the idea of calling. So I find it appropriate, dare I say, almost divine that Allison would respond, he's sabbaticaling, as I rested and reflected on my calling. So today's message, it stems from my sabbatical experience grounded in scripture and sabbatical story. And in many ways, I expect this to be what would be more of a tune-up message for most of us. There's likely not something in here that's a brand new idea you've never heard of before. Praise God if there is. But instead, it's one of those things that we probably need to be reminded of again and again Because without those tune-ups, we find we start to drift and we forget. So that's more the nature of this. But press in and lean in during this time, because I trust there's something in here for each of you. In a lot of ways, that's what this mini-sabbatical was. It was a refocusing uh, to reorient and reestablish some priorities and, and, and to refocus in that way. And so it's my prayer that this message can be that for us in some small way today. So the question I'd love for you to consider throughout the remainder of this message is what small or big shifts in your faith walk do you sense God calling you to as you sit and receive God's word? Pay attention to the things that stand out to you. Write them down. And then don't just pay attention to what strikes you. Make a tangible plan to pursue that spirit-led change. That's my hope and prayer for all of us today, to pay attention to those things. The verse we're going to ground ourselves in, it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17. We'll get to it in just a minute. To give you some context, Paul wrote this letter to the church in Corinth. Now, apparently he actually wrote a letter before this, but we've lost it. We don't have it. It's not in the biblical uh, 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 canon for us. But they had a lot of questions. And so in this 1 Corinthians letter, Paul spent a long time answering and explaining in depth those questions. The thing you need to know is the church in Corinth kind of had a lot of problems. I mean, there's another letter that comes after this too. I mean, he had a lot to address. In fact, in 1 Corinthians alone, you can count 15 different issues that Paul addresses in this one letter. 
And one of the driving messages of the letter, the first letter to Corinth that we have here from Paul is to instruct the church and as an extent to instruct us how to relate to one another. Appropriate relations, that is. The two most known passages of this letter are really well-known passages. The first one's the one on love. You know it. It was probably read at half your weddings. Love is patient. Love is kind. Does not envy. Does not boast. A beautiful passage on the appropriate way and the deep truth of what love is. And then the other that you likely know is about Christ's body. That it is Christ's body made up of different parts and we all make up that body. But before that, and after addressing a number of the church in Corinth's issues, Paul writes this. 1 Corinthians seven seventeen. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Praise God for his true word, and we trust his blessing upon it. The primary point of this verse is not all that difficult to grasp. Each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them. In other words, we do not get to decide when we put our follower of Jesus shirt on or off, right? There's no such thing as being a part-time Christian. Once you give your life to Christ, you are Christian. You belong fully, body and soul, to him. And you're either living in obedience or disobedience. If you follow Christ, you are called to follow him fully. One of those super easy to say and yes and amen type of things, except a little harder for us all to live out. We can say this and proclaim this, and then uh, all of a sudden we're stuck in traffic and we act like the Holy Spirit has left us. We start staying and doing some stuff like, whoa, that ain't right. Or we start to think the Holy Spirit leaves us when we have a really, really bad server. And you're just sitting there stewing and saying, well, I'm going to send this server a message. Or we think that the Holy Spirit leaves us when it's like 2 a.m. and your child is still awake and you just want to sleep. And you wonder if every parent in the world who says parenting is such a gift from God, if they were all liars. Here's the thing. The Holy Spirit never leaves us. Not once, not ever, not for a second, not for a moment. It's us who do not invite the Spirit into every aspect of our days and our lives. Human nature. And so Paul reminds the church in Corinth, he lays it down as a rule for all the churches and for us to live as a believer, in whatever situation the Lord has placed you, that the Lord has assigned to you, just as God has called you. We say it frequently here at Hope. It's not just pastors or elders or deacons who are called. Each and every one of us has a God-given calling on our lives. You are called. Why don't you look at someone near you and say, you are called. Why don't you look at your second choice and say, you too are called. 
If you're online, why don't you write, I am called. You are called. All of God's children are called. John Calvin explains it this way uh, in relating to this passage in his commentary. He says this, The calling should hold us, as it were, under God's yoke, even where an individual feels his situation to be an unpleasant one. The image of a yoke being yoked to like an oxen, you know Jesus used this imagery as well, where we are strapped to this thing, and we are next to God, and we follow his lead, and he does the heavy work, but we follow a beautiful illustration of what it is to be called our calling. It is doing the work that God brought us to and following him as he leads. We do so under his care, under his guidance, as he shoulders the heavy load and leads us forward on the path that he sets. And throughout, he never leaves us alone. This idea of calling following, all of that. It's a prime focus of my time away while sabbaticaling, resting in the presence of my Savior as I remembered my God-given calling. And this is the universal calling for all Christ followers. The first calling of all Christ followers is to follow. What does Jesus say to the 12 disciples? He says, follow me. What does he say to us? Follow me. What was our very first answer to the call? But I will follow. I will follow today. I will follow tomorrow. I will follow in the valley at the traffic light at 2.30 a.m. And I will follow on the mountaintops. I will remember my calling and I will follow you, Lord, where you lead me. For to you I am yoked. And it is in you I trust, and to you I give my life. Lead me. The first and primary call of each of us is to follow. I'm a pastor, but so in a lot of ways I, I am helping lead this flock. And yet, my most important work that I am called to is to follow, to follow Jesus. So while I was away on my sabbatical, I sought to deepen my walk, to reprioritize my life, to better follow him. I had a lot of time to do a lot of reading, to do a lot of writing, a lot of praying, a lot of reflecting. Had the opportunity to enjoy his creation, to enjoy the great, great gift of my family that he has blessed me with. And throughout this experience, God did a good work in me. He reminded me of what drew me to him in the first place. And he gave me some of those needed reminders in his own gentle way of some of those everlasting truths to cling to as I returned to my work here. And so that's what I'm going to share. A few of these things that uh, I have gleaned. This is not exhaustive. It was a very fruitful three weeks. But I'll share with you some of the things, trusting that uh, it will remind you of some of the things that led you to follow Jesus 
in the first place. So one of the things I did on my sabbatical, it was the second week of my three weeks, I, I wanted to spend intentional time with each of my three kids. It's hard to carve out that time to spend intentionally one-on-one with each of them. But I did this, and it, it, was, it was really quite a joyful experience. And so uh, Miles is my oldest. He's six years old. He's a really creative kid. He loves art. He loves to draw. He loves to think creatively. Um, and so he spends so much time drawing that if you were to, to walk into his room, he would often draw on all these scrap pieces of paper, like computer paper. And you would walk into his room, and it would look basically like New Year's Day in Times Square. Okay? Papers everywhere. You couldn't even walk in the place. So I said, hey, Miles, uh, I want to spend some time with you. How do you feel about going to an art store getting you your first actual sketchbook, getting you some good art supplies that are not created by Crayola. What do you think? He was ecstatic. So we went to Hobby Lobby and we went out to dinner afterwards. I have a picture here. This is Miles and I. Miles brought in one of his sketchbooks and his markers to the restaurant. Applebee's, he got a corn dog. And he he wanted to draw at the restaurant. So that's Spider-Man in the Miles Morales uh, Spider-Man costume you can see. And we sat there and we drew the whole time while talking. He wanted to learn how to draw a wizard, so I drew one on a napkin upside down for him to follow, and he followed it. That sketchbook is nearly done now. This was only a couple weeks ago, and it is beautiful to flip through. He is so proud to sit with you and to share these creations. And look at this one, Dad, and look at this one and that one and this. And my time with Miles reminded me of God's creativity. Miles had this passion, this joy in creating, this joy in making a new thing to fill up the sketchbook with creations that he thought of on his own. And you know, I, I, I talked briefly about this at one of our congregational meetings. My newest hobby, as you know, is to learn how to carve. And I sit here, and these, I made these during my time on sabbatical. I had four guys I carved. Oh, excuse me, three guys and a gal at long last for Daisy, her birthday. And like Miles, I sit there and I create these things. And I take such joy in making something out of nothing and putting my imprint and my own personality on them that when you see them, oddly enough, when we were at Hobby Lobby, I saw one of my high school friends. We went through all these art classes together. And she said, I would have known these were yours had I seen them online from a stranger because they have your personality in them. And what does this do but Miles' joy, my joy in this creating is remind me of God's creativity and his joy in creating. He spoke the cosmos into being. He he made Adam out of the dust of the earth and Eve from the rib of Adam and, and he delights in his creation. You can see it by the whimsical nature of nature. I woke up this morning at 5.30. The sun was already starting to crest. I opened the door to let Henry out, our dog, and the birds are just joyfully singing. And you say, yeah, God created this, and God is good. He created you. He created us with his very image. He has imprinted us with his image. We are image bearers of the creative God. 
so we can look about his beautiful creation. We can see the sun, the sky, the stars, and hear the birds sing and see God's imprint of his goodness upon it all, even despite the brokenness that comes from sin. And we can give him thanks. And we can live our lives in response as we join our voice to all of creation to sing his praises. Just as when I look at Miles' drawings, and I can see the ways that perhaps, you know, Spider-Man's anatomy is not quite 100% right or something's a little unique about it. I don't look at it and focus on the imperfections. I look at it and take incredible joy in what my kid has done. And that's how God views each of you. He looks at you as his handiwork, his masterpiece, and he says, look at my child whom I love. Yeah, there's these things within them, and they are struggling with sin, and I mourn with them, and I long for them to be free from that, and that's why I send Jesus. But ultimately, look at my kid, whom I love. God is a creative God who creates with love, and you can see it everywhere you look. God looks at you and does not see junk. He does not see screw-ups. He sees his beautiful creation whom he loves and whom he calls. So I took Miles to the art store and to dinner. And uh, Crosby's a different kid, though. Crosby, he's learning very slowly how to, like, draw people. But, it's, you know, it's like kind of a circle, kind of alien, you know, a couple circles and lines. And it's beautiful. He's growing. and he's, he's not just scribbling anymore. And that's cool. But that's not so much his passion. If you know Crosby, you might know his passion is uh, tractors and lawnmowers and, and construction vehicles and all of that. So naturally, I took Crosby to Steensmas. Okay, and here he is sitting on one of a million tractors that, rest assuredly, he sat on all of them twice. <laughs> and then we went for pizza uh, afterwards. And yes, that's his John Deere hat that is permanently fixed to his head, as you know, because he has it on today and every day. Crosby loves to work. He loves all this stuff. The past two days, all we have done is yard work. (laughs) In fact, I joked about two o'clock and your kid's up. Uh, Saturday night, I don't even, I I haven't even told you this yet. I forgot to tell you. Uh, Saturday morning, 2.30 a.m., Crosby's calling out, Dad, Dad. Our bedroom's on the main floor right now and his room's upstairs. So I have to go all the way up there and I make my, my, my very groggy journey up to his room and I go in worried. Maybe he fell off his bed. That's happened. Or maybe, uh, he's not feeling well or, or he had a bad dream or whatever. And I go in, I go, what is it, buddy? He goes, Dad, we mowed the grass tomorrow. It's 2.30 a.m., son. We will deal with the grass tomorrow. (laughs) He wakes up in the middle of the night, and all he can think about is, do I get to mow the grass with my dad tomorrow? And that's who Crosby is. So you can imagine how giddy he was to sit on all these tractors and these lawnmowers, to ask how they work and all that stuff. And what does this remind me? What does Crosby remind me of? but the biblical truth that God created work to be good. He created us with a desire for good, fruitful work. You know that God created work in the garden before the fall. And he gives each of us specific work to do 
as we seek to follow him. Now, all of our work isn't always easy to find the joy in, right? Paul addresses that in the letter, and you could see it in Calvin's commentary on it. No matter how undesirable that work may seem, if God has called you to it, be a believer in that space. Look at this from the psalmist in Psalm 128. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. God blesses us in our faithful and fruitful work. It can be felt as we, as we sit back and look at a job well done as we look and admire a freshly mowed lawn. Meg will laugh at me, and I'll just stand there, you know, with a cup of coffee looking out the window. Those lines are pretty straight, huh? It's pretty good, yeah? She's like, yep, it's really good. Larry still does it better. She doesn't say that, but it is true. You can admire and understand the fruitfulness of work in a job well done. But the work that God calls each of us to, it is rarely easy. We also know that's part of the fall, right? That our work, we, we, will, we will labor for it. It is rarely easy. And yet, if we seek to follow him faithfully in that place, we will experience fruit. And dare I say, we can even experience a childlike, a Crosby-like joy. Crosby does not view work as a burden. And just to make sure you know, he's not just out there playing, he works just as hard as I do. I want to find a safe way to hook up a blade to his play mower, honestly, because it would look great. Uh, we're planting some garden beds. Meg's been working hard to put some raised garden beds. He works so hard. He has this little toy tractor. He kept hauling brush and stuff for us with that toy tractor. The kid works hard, but he doesn't view his work as a burden. It is a joy. To him, it's play. So what would it look like for each of us to view our work with that same mindset, that same outlook? Not the, I have to go to work today, but I get to serve God at work today. He has placed me here with work to do and fruit that is ready to come out. So that's what two of my kids reminded me about. I have a two-year-old also named Daisy. What in the world do you do just one-on-one with a two-year-old? Well, you get Bob Durian's cookie recipe and you bake cookies. Here's Daisy. Uh-huh. Look at that smile. You think she's having fun? You think she had a few chocolate chips? You think she had a, a couple dozen handfuls of chocolate chips? Yeah. Have you ever baked with a two-year-old? It is crazy. I don't do a whole lot of baking. I, I cook a lot, not baking. So I'm not on my game anyway when I'm baking. And then you throw a two-year-old in the mix, and yet, oh, what fun. What a joy, joy-filled time. There's so much excitement in that. Oh, she's gone, but you know, there's so much excitement in her. You turn on that mixer, and after the initial shock, it's just, whoa, wonder. And so many chocolate chips eaten as well. Beyond just making cookies, we also went for a walk throughout our neighborhood. Daisy pointed out every single bird. She pointed out every single car we passed. She pointed out every single trash bin. And it was trash day. It was a lot of trash bins. Every flower in every color of every 
flower. And what, accum- what, what accompanied all of those observations, but a wow, wow, wow. My time with Daisy reminded me of what it's like to live with wonder. A childlike wonder. You've heard that expression. What a beautiful posture for us as Christians to embrace. To live with curiosity, to to expect to be amazed each and every day. For each and every day is another gift from our loving creator, God. And he's at work. He never slumbers. He never sleeps. And when the masterful creator God is at work, it's going to blow us away. What does it look like for us to embrace a posture of wonder in a world of cynicism? I dare say we will stand out. I dare say we'll be better equipped to navigate the highs and lows of this difficult life. Look at what it says in Psalm 86. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, shall glorify your name, for you are great, and you do what? Wondrous things. You alone are God. God does wondrous things every single day. Are our eyes open and tuned to notice them? That's what my kids taught me. Now, throughout the time, and there's no way you can't also reflect on the importance of rest, of solitude, of of quiet space and meeting God in rest, about getting out of your normal rhythms to rest. Meg and I had an incredible opportunity to go to Atlanta area for uh, almost a week on the front end. And we uh, intentionally, well, Meg, she, she didn't coerce. You, you inspired me, and it worked because it was perfect. She found this amazing little cabin in the woods on a private lake in the middle of this beautiful place just to decompress and rest in God's creation. And that's what we did for the first little part and then there was rust sprinkled throughout the whole time. The reality is we are not well-tuned to fruitful, intentional rest. We're starved for rest. My three weeks proved that, because uh, often our rest is not fruitful in any way. In fact, it took me almost the entire three weeks until I finally felt like I was starting to feel a little bit at rest. In a lot of ways, it felt like a three-week detox. It reveals my normal rhythms are not healthy, and perhaps you can relate to that, where you are just longing for this thing, and you have no idea how can I get it, and how in the world do you get three weeks off? I haven't had a sabbatical, and I've been working for 40 years, right? Yeah. And in that space, I wrestled with what it means to be still. You know the verse, be still and know that I am God. Be still. Try being still for 10 minutes. Try flexing that muscle for even longer. Try to take every thought captive and submit it to the will of Christ in that space. It is hard to be still. And yet Jesus always would retreat from the crowds to pray and have important solitude time with God. In fact, the very beginning of his ministry was to enter into the desert for 40 days. God 
He created the heavens and the earth. He rested on the seventh day. And God calls us to rest and to refocus on him. And yet there's nothing about this life in 2022 that makes this easy. In fact, our world is as incompatible with intentional rest as it has ever been. And yet, as our Corinthians passage reminds us, we are to remember our calling. And our first calling is to follow and live as a believer right here where God has placed us to try to embody who Jesus Christ was here and now in our space and our shoes. And that means operating at a different rhythm from the rest of the world. So how might we give intentional time to rest? Where might you find it? How can you carve out that space daily, weekly, and even monthly? And again, perhaps a detox is in order. And then to not enter into a numbing rest, but a true fruitful rest. I don't have many answers on that yet after my three time, but I'm starting to get a glimpse of what it takes. So my encouragement to you is begin that journey for yourself and make it a priority. Now finally, I did a lot of reading during my time on sabbatical, a whole lot. I started like, like eight different books. I finished like three of them, and I'm a slow reader, so it was really great. And most of the stuff I read about was about identity. I didn't mean for that, but that's where I was drawn to. My, a lot of identity work, especially identity as a pastor. Because being a pastor, it's this thing God has called me to. Being a pastor is strange stuff, man. It is a strange place. Curry has a good old big smile on his face. It is bizarre. It is challenging. It is so rewarding. It's so filled with blessings and uniqueness. And it can be very confusing. And yet, what a unique and sincere honor. And as a man who's 34 and been doing this pastor thing for a bit, I'm pretty sure it's one of those things that the more you do it, the more you realize you don't understand it. And yet, it's such a blessing. The work of a pastor is very confusing because in just one sentence, your interactions with people can change. If I'm getting my hair cut and I'm getting along well with my hairdresser and we're talking and it's friendly and all that, and then they ask, hey, what do you do? <laughs> Be a believer in every area of your lives. I'm a pastor. And either all of a sudden they are super holy or they're super silent. <laughs> they start using words like you don't even use as a pastor, like, yes, and verily I went to church. I'm like, I don't think that's how it works. But, you know, and all that. Or, you know, sometimes people do confess things to you or they want guidance and praise God for that. But it's a weird thing. And we all have that in the same way when we stand out and profess we're Christian. Isn't that so? But there is such beauty within that. All my reading, all my time, I reflect and reminded me again and again and again, being a pastor is not what I do, it's who I am. That means I'm a pastor everywhere I go. When I go to get my hair cut, I'm not just going to get my hair cut. I'm going as God's ambassador to be salt and light in that space. And if there is a work as a pastor to be done, I am on call and I am ready to answer that call. 
That means I'm a pastor at home. That means I'm a pastor as I walk this neighborhood. I'm not just a neighbor. I'm also pastor. I am called to follow and called to shepherd in every facet of my life. That's my identity. You have an identity, a God-given, imprinted identity too, to never lose sight of that. We can never lose sight of who we are and whose we are. This world will confuse us and fight to twist our priorities. The world will say a pastor is just a job and one you only do Sunday mornings. (laughs) And yet we are told to cling tight to who God says we are. For me, first and foremost, I'm a child of God, called to follow God. I'm a husband to Meg. I'm a father to Miles, Crosby, and Daisy. And I am a pastor serving Christ. Called to serve him at Hope Church, serving Christ here in Westward, Westwood, seeking to serve Christ wherever I am. And to do what you are called to do for all of us, we have to remember who we are. Here's just a small glimpse of what God's true word says that you are. He says you're a child of God, a friend of God. You're justified and you are redeemed. You have been freed from the powers and chains of sin. You're no longer slaves. You're not condemned any longer. In fact, you're a co-heir with Christ. You are accepted by Christ and a vessel of the Holy Spirit. The old is gone, the new has come because you're a new creation in Christ. In fact, you're the very righteousness of God, a masterpiece of God, a citizen not of this broken place, but of heaven, called to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That is who you are. That is your God-given identity. And it is an identity that you have been given with a calling upon your life a specific calling on how to live that out. So I return to the question at the beginning of our message. What did you hear today that you needed to hear again? What was that spirit-led reminder you needed today? And ultimately, what are you going to now do with it? Perhaps it's the very nature that you are called Perhaps it's that God is creative and loves us and has joy for you and adores you. Or perhaps that fruitfulness and joy can be sound and serve in him, whether it's in our work or in our rest. Or it could simply be reclaiming a childlike wonder as we prepare and expect to be amazed by God each and every day. What a gift to be his child. And what a gift to be called. I leave you with this potent words, also from Paul, as written in 2 Timothy. He has saved us. And he has called us to live a holy life. Not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. May all glory, honor, and praise be to God 
and God alone. Amen. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you and bow before you now to say that you have called us. And Lord, we say thank you. And God, we think even of the words of the prophet Isaiah, whom shall I send? And we look around and we see the workplace you have called us to, the neighborhood you have placed us in the people that you have surrounded in our lives, the kids you have given us, the friendships that make up our relationships. And you say, whom shall I send? And Lord, we declare today, and we long to say and mean it, here I am, Lord. Send me. You have given us each a calling, God, and we give you thanks for it is not a calling that you throw us to the wolves and is a calling of grace for you yoke us to yourself. You lead us, you guide us, you sustain us, you bear the weight of the burden. So God, in this small breath we get from the week as we refocus on you in this set-apart act of worship, we pray, Lord, that we will be filled again by the power of your Spirit to do the work you have called us to as your children of God. We thank you that that is our identity. That's who we are. That is not found in the things we do or what this world says, but fully in who you say we are. We thank you, God. Pray that we can do what you've pressed on our hearts to do this week and for grace for the journey. It is now in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.